Well, welcome. We have a very busy evening ahead of us. Open up to Galatians. We're going to be in this small book for months. And, and it may not be obvious to you. If you're new and you go, what? You know, think about what we're doing in the room, right? It's like, well, what are we, what, I said this before, what are we all doing here, right? We're going to open up a book that's 2,000 years old, and we're going to look at 149 verses. It takes, you know, roughly 20 minutes to read. And we're going to look at 149 verses for four months. It's like, why are we doing this? It's like, well, the reason that we're doing this is we believe the Bible is God's word, and what God did is he wrote a book. He said, hey, I'm going to do something. It's going to be fixed. It's going to be objective. It's going to be outside of you. It's going to be unchanging, just like me. And if you want a word from God, then you need to go to the word of God. And the word of God, we're going to see, it speaks to everything. And so we're going to spend the next few months, and we're believing that this book of Galatians, that God is going to use it to convict, to convert, to comfort, to counsel. We are incredibly excited. This book, let me just, I'm not going to do a huge introduction to the book of Galatians. I'll mention things uh, throughout the weeks as we go on, but let me just say, I'm a little intimidated to preach this book because of the impact it's had in human history. I'm, I'm also very expectant. Who knows what God was going to do in your life? Or in your life, I mean, who knows, right? You should come to church, or any day, but come to church expecting, what could God do? We want to have that spirit around here, but, but here's what happened. There was a guy named Martin Luther, and he was a monk, and I won't tell his whole story, but the real short version is he was a monk who was very, very religious and thought he was going to hell, like really, and thought he was a terrible person, really, and he tried to be very religious, and he tried to do a lot of rituals, and it wasn't working, and then he was reading the book of Galatians, and he's reading the book of Romans, and God opened his eyes to see what the grace of God is. We're going to talk about that in this series. And to understand what the gospel is, and here's what Martin Luther said at the end of his life. He said, the book of Galatians is my wife. To her I am betrothed. Now that's a Bible nerd. Someone who says that they want to marry a book of the Bible, okay? But that's what he said. He loved this book. And in this book, and we're going to look at it, in this book, the, the, the main idea of this book, the big idea for the whole book is that you're forgiven and free to bear fruit. That's the idea of the entire book. And man, it's like, that's what you want to know about God. What is God? God is a forgiver and a giver. That's what he is. And he's willing to forgive you. This is the great news. It's like, well, you know, it's only good news if you really think you need anything forgiven. But if you know yourself as sinful, if you know yourself as somebody who has done evil things and has evil thoughts and needs to be forgiven, it's great news. And not only that, because one of the things Paul's going to say is, listen, guys, the gospel, the good news of Christ crucified for sinners, the gospel is not, it's not the door that you enter the house in and then forget about. It's the entire house. It's not the ABCs and then you move on to it. It's the A to Z. You know, we said it here before, it's not, the, it's not the diving board, it's the swimming pool. It's not how you just enter the Christian life, it's how you enjoy all of the Christian life. And so we're going to be looking at this, and he, let me tell you one last thing before we dive into the text, is I want to talk about this phrase, because we're going to talk about this a lot in the weeks to come. What does it mean to be gospel-centered? Everybody's writing a book with gospel-centered, right? Gospel-centered friendship, you know, gospel-centered dating, gospel-centered marriage, gospel-centered parenting. It's kind of become a buzzword. What does it mean to be gospel-centered? I, I will, I'll tell you what it means. I'll give you the simplest version uh, that I know and so you can live it out and try to apply it just like I'm trying to apply it. Here's what it means to be gospel-centered. It means to live as a sinner saved by God's grace. So that, that's actually what it means. So, you know, do you have a gospel marriage? Well, to the extent that both of you are living like sinners. And so you're, expect, you're not surprised when your spouse sins. And you're not trying to hide your sin and act like you don't sin. And you're really humble because you know you need the grace of God and man, are you willing to extend it? Because you know he or she needs it, and that's how your friendships are, and that's what parenting looks like. And, and so we're going to look at this idea, because what Paul understood, and we'll look more at his story in weeks to come, but Paul understood himself fundamentally and foundationally as a sinner saved by God's grace. 
So I hope you'll, you'll be excited with me. We're going to just look at five verses for the rest of our time. We're going to look at verses one through five in this incredible book of Galatians. Turn with me or type two, Galatians chapter one, and we're going to read verse one. And we're going to cover every word of the book. And I may just read one word and I just may talk about it because every word uh, is super important. So here's the first word, Paul. Now, if you don't know this, Paul is one of the, (laughs) that's it. Yeah, you're like, that's it. That's the one word. Quite literally, one word. Okay, here it is. Paul is a towering figure, not just in church history, in human history. I mean, I want you to understand that most people who have studied Christianity believe it for two reasons. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the life of Paul. Like, foundationally, and we talk about it at Easter for a long time, the resurrection of Christ and how it's historically rooted in, and then the life of the Apostle Paul. His willingness to suffer his heart for people, the churches that he planted, you're talking about a towering figure. After Jesus Christ, nobody in the New Testament is more influential. The guy, we've only studied a few of his books, we're gonna study this one. He wrote half of the New Testament, 13 books, some think maybe he also wrote Hebrews, we don't know. On top of that, he was pastor to Luke. He was Luke's pastor. Well, Luke wrote two of the longest books in the New Testament, Luke and Acts. So Paul's influence is enormous. And he introduces himself, he says, hey, listen, I'm Paul, and they know who he is. And then he says this, I'm an apostle. Do you see that? He says that in verse one. Now, what is an apostle? An apostle, we don't have them anymore, in in the capital A sense of the word. An apostle were special men given a special task. That's what they were. There was 13 of them, if you count Matthias, replacing Judas. There was 13 apostles, the 12 and Paul. And here's what they did. They walked with Jesus. They were his disciples. They had face-to-face encounters and interactions. That's why later when Paul defends, not in this letter, he'll defend his apostleship. He'll say, Christ appeared to me. And they had a unique ability to write scripture and to speak the word of God. Now, here's what the church is asking. Just so you know, every church that's trying to be biblical is asking this question. How do we live without apostles? We don't have apostles today. They're all dead. And so, well, you know, the Catholic Church says, well, I know what happened. Like, you know, Peter was an apostle, and then he just gave it to everybody. And so the Pope is an apostle. That's, that's, I mean, that's a very short version of the Catholic answer. And then other churches say, well, there's not apostles, but you can kind of see that there was a structure, and there was Paul, and there was Titus, and there was, there was Timothy, and there were special guys, and they raised up, and so they come up with bishops. So there's different people, and they're trying to ask the question, how do we organize the church without apostles? Paul comes in, he says, I'm an apostle. Now, there are what we would call little A apostles nowadays. Little a apostle, because the word just means one who is sent with a message. Now, we don't call ourselves apostles because somebody who does that, because it can be confusing. It sounds strange. But the whole idea here is that Paul's going to introduce himself, and the main thing that he's doing, and we're going to spend some time talking about this today, the, the, the lion's share of our time this evening is going to be talking about authority. Because what Paul is doing, this is interesting in this letter, you're going to see in verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man. So he's, he's defending his authority. He's saying, listen, this is not uh, man-made religion. Man-made religion is in the anthropology section at at university, right? It's it's man's thoughts about God. That's religion. God's thoughts about God and man, now that's Christianity, that's revelation. That's not speculation, that's revelation. Paul's saying, I want you to know that that's what I'm doing. He says, I'm not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So, What Paul needs to do in this letter is defend his authority to preach and teach the gospel. This is the only letter, interestingly enough, it's Paul's first letter, and it's the only letter where he has nothing good to say about the people, right? You know, unfortunately. 
I mean, he says a couple nice things later in chapter four, but early on he says, not, now normally, just like you, when you write an email, you, know, you start almost all your emails the same way, I bet. I hope this email finds you doing well, you know, whatever. You, 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 kind, you sign them all the same way, that's okay. Paul did the same thing, except in this instant, the reason is he has something that is really on his heart. And he's very, very concerned. He wrote to churches that were living in sin, but hadn't left the gospel, and he's very kind to them, because they hadn't left the main message. But here they've left the main message, and he's, he's going to confront them. So I want us to see six things with our time left about the gospel. I'm just going to give you six things. The first two or three will be longer than the last two or three, so don't get worried. You're going to think, is this a three-hour sermon? It's not, okay? But here's what it is. First, the gospel is about authority and authenticity, authority and authenticity, authority and authenticity. In other words, uh, it has power, it is true, and it's real, and it's authentic too. So what Paul's going to do is he's going to share a lot about his life and a lot about his calling from God. Now, we talk here about authority and authenticity. We call it open Bible, open life. And, you know, do millennials like authority or authenticity? Authenticity, yeah, that's right, right? Millennials don't like anyone to be in charge. They, they want to make decisions together. They want consensus. They feel very uncomfortable often being in charge or being under somebody who's in charge. But what you have to understand is, if you're going to have a God big enough that you're going to be able to worship him, he's going to interfere with your will. That's what it means. Like, well, <laughs> that's the price you pay. God, who is so glorious, he interferes in your life. He's that big, right? And the question in your life and in my life is like, well, is there anybody who can tell you no? You know, I mean, who is the authority in your life, right? Because it's not just millennials. I pick up millennials. It's all of us. We don't really want anyone to be an authority over us, right? It's all about the self. So let me tell you where today we find authority. There's really a couple places, and I'll go through these quickly. First, people try to find authority in the state. Now, we don't, not in America, but that would be the government, I mean. I want you to know that sounds silly to us because we're Americans. It's all about freedom, right? It's all about being able to do whatever we want to do and, and actually say terrible things about the government if we want to. That's kind of what it means to be American. But you need to understand, and the good thing to always say is, well, historically and globally, how have things been? Well, historically and globally, uh, most people have lived under a Caesar or a dictator or a king or an emperor or some kind of totalitarian government. That, that's the normal experience of humanity across time. We saw that when we read the book of Daniel, and it's like, well, you know, none of us want to live places where the king thinks he is the highest authority, right? It's like, that's why, how many of you go, I'm not planning to go to North Korea for spring break, right? You're like, yeah, right? You, I don't even like, I get scared watching documentaries about North Korea in my house, okay? <laughs> because it's a scary place. Why? Because Kim Jong-un and his father and his grandfather, they think they are God, basically, and they, convince, they try to convince everyone else they're God, right? And this is, by the way, why Christianity never... Uh, is always, well, it can flourish in the midst of it because of the, the power of the gospel, but this is why uh, totalitarian dictators squish out Christianity everywhere. Because what does Christianity say? Even the king must bow to somebody higher. So that's not our experience. Our experience is more to say, well, you know, authorities in society. And by society, I just mean the culture. I just mean the status quo. I just mean what's trending on social media. That's, you know, that's where um, popular opinion is. That's where the authority is, right? It's like, and that's actually what politicians are trying to figure out a lot of times. Well, what does everyone believe, and how have views shifted, and I'm going to kind of try to be on the right side of history, right? This is why we're always wondering, like, what are the celebrities believing, right? What, what is popular? Well, you know, that's one way we do it. Here's the third way, the self. Like, in other words, I'm my highest authority, right? And we're just, we live in a culture that is so, we've talked about this before, I won't go into it too much, but we just so, we're so obsessed with ourselves, right? Self-help, and self-esteem, and self-respect, and some of these are good concepts, but we are just completely obsessed with the self, and we think, well, if I don't like how it feels, 
that is probably not true. We don't say that out loud, but if I don't like how it makes me feel, then it's maybe not true. Well, something can be true, and you may not like how it makes you feel. Some people feel bad for being American because it's not fair. Is it fair to be American? I mean, I don't know. You've got a lot more advantages than the rest of the world. Are you American? Yeah. So something can be true and not fair. It can be true, and you don't like it. So the, the, the highest authority is not the society or the state or the self, but it's got to be the scriptures. And, and this is, by the way, if you ever wonder, why do we do what, what we call this expository preaching? Why does Kyle read two words and talk about them and then read three words and talk about them? It's because I don't have any authority in and of myself. Uh, we do what's called expository preaching, and what's the main word in that? Expose. We just want to expose what the scripture says and put it before people. So Paul is going to defend his, his apostleship. He's going to do this. He says, I'm not through man, or not, you know, not, not from man. Here's what Paul is doing when he's defending his apostleship. He's basically trying to show them that he is called by God. That's the main idea there. And, and, and so he, he's going to talk about, and this is, this is a helpful thing, you need to, in your life, have an internal calling and an external calling. So what Paul's going to say is, I was called by God, it's confirmed by man. And, that, and that's a good thing to think about. It's like, you know, and it doesn't mean you're going to be called to full-time ministry, right? Ministry's got a certain calling to it, but really, it would be ideal. It doesn't always happen. It would be ideal if you felt a sense of calling, right? That's what the word vocation means. We talk about careers. Historically, they ca- talked about vocations. What does that mean? Callings. And what is a calling? An overwhelming desire for the work. That's what it means to be called. If you go, well, I feel called to be a doctor, here's what it means. I have an overwhelming desire for the work. Anytime we talk to a, a man about being an elder in our church, and we take men through a, a pipeline and a process and a pathway to kind of do that, uh, w- when we first meet with them, one of the first questions that we ask for them is, do you have an overwhelming desire for the work of shepherding? for the work of caring for God's church, because we don't want willing victims. We don't want guys who just read a Bible verse about elders and think they need to be it. We want guys who have a deep desire and passion for it. So Paul defends it. He says, look, guys, I'm an apostle. Then he talks about his ministry. And we'll see this. I'm not going to get into it today. But he talks about the life that he lived. And then he talks about his message. He talks about the power of his message. What does this have to do with us? It has to do with this idea that, and this is a really helpful concept to understanding your marriage and your parenting and community groups, that you have both derivative authority and moral authority. Those are the only types of authority you have in your life. Derivative and moral. Derivative and moral. Derivative authority is, it means, the, I mean, the word derivative literally means from another source. And so to have derivative authority, it's, it's actually a really helpful thing to know because, again, millennials especially, but all of us, uh, we don't like to tell anybody what to do ever. Because, well, you know, because kind of in our pride, it's kind of like, well, because we don't want anyone to ever else tell us what to do. A derivative authority means that you have the power to say to others what the Bible says and to call them to it. No matter who you are, no matter if they're in a different life stage than you, you're able to go to them and say, hey, listen, you know, this is what the Bible says about sexual purity. This is what the Bible says about drunkenness. This is what the Bible says about finances. And the reason that you can do that is because, you know, if you're a Christian, you should be saying something like this, I'm under the same authority. That's, that's the humility part. It's like, hey, I'm, 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 uh, I'm the mailman. You know, I don't write the mail. I just deliver it. And I'm under the word of God, just like you are. But then you have a second type of authority, uh, which is what's called moral authority. And that's helpful to know. Moral authority is the authority, that, and people can feel it. And you can feel it when people have it. Moral authority is I'm living this out myself. I'm doing the hard work. I'm working on my fantasy life. I'm repentant of my sin. I'm not going to call you to do anything that I've not called myself to do first. I've gone into my prayer closet, and I've dealt with myself, and I know my motives, and I know my heart's desires. That's what, and so what happens is, 
you will be confusing to people. You'll still have a derivative authority, but you'll be confusing to people if you don't have moral authority as well, right? Because you've seen this. It's like the, um, the personal trainer who's overweight and unhealthy. And you've seen these personal trainers. And I'm not making fun of them. I'm just pointing out, we all, we all kind of giggle a little bit there because we have, we have what's, what happens when you see an overweight, unhealthy personal trainer is you have, what happens in your brain is you have cognitive dissonance. You see something that you don't understand. Well, how can somebody know, how can you have a degree in exercise sports science and how can you get paid to help people get in shape and you be out of shape? It's just like, a, I'm not picking on this, I'm just saying that's, that's a clear example, right? It's, it would be like somebody who um, wants to, has read all the Dave Ramsey, knows all the Bible verses, knows give, save, you know, give, save, live. They've read Randy Alcorn's The Treasure Principle, okay? They want to teach a financial class and their finances are completely out of order. And it's like, well, man, I don't know what's going on in your life. Right? But there's some kind of disconnect between what you say you know and how you're living your life. And, what, and we've talked about this a lot. What happens is we exchange insight, or we exchange application for insight. We think we've obeyed it because we understand it. And that's a very dangerous, and the more Bible you know, the more you think, well, I've obeyed it. No, 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 you haven't. You've just understood it. You just know how to talk about it, but you, you haven't really obeyed it. And, 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 what, and how you'll know in your life if you have... Um, Derivative authority, but not moral authority, is you'll feel weak when you talk about things. You'll talk about giving, and you're just like, well, I don't really give. <laughs> I know the Bible says I should, but I feel weak because I just know that I'm not, you know. You'll talk about repenting of sin and living a pure life, and every time you'll go, well, I'm not really. You, and you won't be, you'll feel weak, and, and so what a lot of people do is then they just never talk about those things. Because then, well, maybe someone will ask you it back, you know. So Paul's going to point to this authority. And, and I want to say one more thing about authority, and then we'll move on, is <clears throat> authority can go too far like anything, right? Authority is a good thing. Authority is meant to serve people. But there is a term, and I've seen this, and I've seen this, unfortunately, there's been people in our church who've come out of other churches, not dogging any churches here, because a lot of churches were in different cities, but have come out of churches, and they would be, they would have experienced what I would call spiritual abuse. And spiritual abuse, the other, the other term for that is heavy-handed shepherding. And, you know, you've heard of, you know, you've heard of physical abuse, um, you've heard of, you know, sexual abuse, you've heard of emotional abuse, there's also spiritual abuse, and spiritual abuse is, um, well, I've, I've seen it. Here's what happens. Normally, someone will come up to me, and they'll say, you know, the, the, if somebody's been in church with spiritual abuse, they'll, they'll want to meet with me usually, and then they'll want to ask me a bunch of questions if it's okay for them to do certain things, like normal, everyday things, and they'll want to keep me updated on their life very closely, and I'll say, hey, you don't actually need to tell me all these things all the time, and you don't need to call me about that, and there's actually freedom in Christ to do that, and then they'll tell me something like, well, my pastor told me that I needed to ask him before I did those kind of things. I mean, I was talking to one lady, and she said, yeah, we had to, at the end of every week, email the pastors any sins we struggled with that week. And not, this is not common, but I'm saying it's, it's, it's more common than you might think. And what, what often happens is, is, you know, it's like, particularly men, they get in these leadership positions, they get in these pastoral positions, and they're like the RA who nobody liked and then became an RA, okay? And now they have some authority, and so they're wielding it and they're using it. Some of them don't really even fully understand what they're doing, but others do know what they're doing. But there, there's dangers on both sides. There's the danger of no authority, and there's the danger of abusing authority. Here's the second thing. The gospel creates identity and community. The gospel creates identity and community. And this is right, you can find this right in verse 2. Verse 2 says this. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of of Galatia. See, here's what's interesting about Paul. Paul is in authority, but in community. 
And man, that's, you know, if there was anybody who you would say doesn't need to be in community, it'd probably be the Apostle Paul. Who could have an excuse? You know, I'm an apostle. I write the Bible. I hang out with Jesus one-on-one. I don't need to be in community, right? That's what you'd think, but Paul, so here's what Paul's doing. Paul is not using his position as an excuse not to be in community. Oh, my, my, you know, my busy travel schedule and all my meetings and, you know, he's not using his age and stage of life. I'm an apostle. It's very difficult. He's actually in community. And community is so important because, you know, I've been reading a lot about this this week, but, but, um, one of the great struggles in America today is loneliness. You know, I was reading a book on counseling, and these two counselors, they said that they were, it was a married couple, and they were talking about counseling, and they said that a lot of young people come to them, older people too, but young people come to them, and they'll, they'll set up a counseling appointment saying, I'm depressed. They'll say, hey, I'm depressed, can we talk about it? And, uh, and they'll meet with them, and they'll share their heart and everything, and then they'll, he'll say, or, or she'll say, you're not depressed, you're lonely. You know, and it's like, well, you no wonder. It's like, well, you know, the family's broken apart. We live in a fatherless generation. Everybody, it's not, a, none of these, you know, it's not wrong to go away to college, but everyone then goes away to college. Then they don't go back home. You know, and then they, everybody's delaying marriage unnecessarily a lot of times, especially men. You know, it's like, well, okay, let's not get married and let's leave our biological family that was probably dysfunctional. And then let's move, let's be very transient. Let's move around all the time. And so we never have deep friendships where we can share secrets and tell stories. It's like, no wonder everybody's depressed. It's like, well, it, it's actually, I'm, and there's other reasons to be depressed. I'm, I'm not trying to oversimplify depression. I'm saying that there's no wonder, I say it this way, no wonder everybody's so lonely. Like, um, Vivek Murthy, he was a former Surgeon General. He, when he left office, this was recently, a couple years ago, he said he thought the greatest problem in America, the greatest health problem in America was not cardiovascular disease, was not smoking, was not obesity. He thought the greatest problem in America was loneliness. And I'm no scientist, I'm no doctor, but he said something like loneliness has similar effects on the body as smoking cigarettes do. And it shortens your life expectancy. This is such a big problem in the UK that um, they created a position a couple years ago called the Minister of Loneliness. That's an official government position in uh, the UK because of the data they were getting on how lonely people are. That they said, we need strategy and we need policy and we need to implement it. And the reason I talk about this is because the church has an answer to loneliness. It's Christian community. You know, we actually have that answer. In fact, the, the, the whole idea of a community here is that you actually can't even understand your Christian identity apart from community. Because yes, there's individual Christian identities. It's like, yes, you are forgiven. But you're adopted also. Well, what does that mean? You're adopted into a family. What does Paul mean with all the brothers are with me? He's like, hey, I'm a brother too. That, you know, how, how can you be a brother or sister in Christ if you don't have any siblings around you in Christ? You have to be in community. Or how can you be a servant? That's another big identity. How can you be a servant if there's nobody that you're doing the one another's to? That there's nobody in your life whom you're a servant. How, how can you be a witness? The Bible talks about being a witness. Witness assumes, Jesus said, um, they will know you are my disciples uh, by how you love one another. Well, if you're not loving one another publicly as the church, how can other people see it? Or how about this? Jesus says, or Paul says, we're a body, the church is. Well, that would, that would mean we're interdependent and connected and that every person is needed and needy. And so I, what I love is that, the, that I think one of the great witnesses that we're going to have in America as the church is, I hope, a strong community afterwards. That we can, that we can the people who are broke, and some of you, look, you could be in a good, healthy church and be lonely. You know, and if you're lonely, we want to help you get connected. You could be in community group and still be lonely. It's not all about that. But you've got to be honest about where you are. We want to help you get connected. We don't want anyone to be lonely and isolated. The strategy of Satan is always to get somebody alone and isolated and then to take advantage of them. 
And so that's what we see here. He says that now, here's what I also want you to see. He's writing the scriptures in community. You see that? He goes, all the brothers who are with me. He's writing scripture in community. Now, here's my application. Here's what that means for us. We are to interpret scripture in community. And this is an interesting thought. I always love kind of historically rooting myself for a moment. Uh, The idea of having your own Bible that you could afford in your language and that you happen to be literate to read it, all of those things. You're literate. uh, You have a Bible in your language. You can afford to have it. You're able to read it. That's about 200 years old. That's a fascinating thought for me. That means for 1,800 years, Christianity went on without any personal Bible reading plans. The book of Acts happened before anyone could have personal devotions. Now, I'm not saying they didn't pray. I'm not saying they didn't fast. I'm not saying they didn't memorize scripture and meditate on it when they could. What I'm saying is that for the first 1,800 years of the church, to understand the scriptures, you had to be in community. There was no, right? Every cult starts with a guy or girl by themselves in the woods with a Bible, right? Um, you know, what, what we need to see here is that instead, we are meant to interpret the scripture in community. Here's why this is so important. You bring to the scripture a bunch of questions, and they're really important, and so does everybody else. But you also bring to the scriptures, like, you know, things you don't want. You're blind, right, to things, and you're biased, and you're willfully blind, and there's certain things you don't want to see. And there's certain ways you're trying to read away the scripture so it doesn't impact you. And I'm doing the same thing, and we're all kind of doing the same thing. And, but when we get together, and we all ask the Bible different questions and wrestle through it, then we're, we're forced to kind of deal with all of it. That's why community groups, by the way, here are such a big deal. Community groups here, we, you know, we're not a church with community groups. We're a church of community groups. And the reason that we do sermon-guided discussions is so that we can talk about it here. You know, we're all, I mean, I, I know I'm the primary one talking, I'm saying, but we're thinking about the scriptures together here, and then throughout the week, you're talking about it. And, and you know, the first thing that, the first question, I don't know if they ever read it, but the first question on the study guide, whenever we give the leaders the study guide, says, at least it used to be the first question, what did Kyle say that you disagree with? Because you're going to probably say it anyway. No, just, um, you know, but the, the whole reason for that, the whole reason for that is so that you would be able to just say in general, hey, what, what do you see in the scripture? And, and, you, and, and honestly, you help each other apply the word. You know, your, your theology is the answers to the questions you ask the Bible. And, this is, and you see this when you do world missions. So I, was, I was, uh, visited a friend of mine in China who was a missionary. I said, how's it going? He said, it's very tough. This was a couple years ago. I said, why is it so tough? He said, well, the Chinese people ask the Bible very different questions than we do. He said, they've been asking a lot of questions about ancestry worship, and we don't have the answers. It's like, well, of course you don't have the answers, because you haven't had, the Bible has the answers to that. I'm not saying the Bible doesn't have answers to that. I'm saying Americans aren't asking that question. But he, had, he said, there's a lot of people asking questions about angels and demons, and we don't have all the answers to these questions, and we've got to go back to the text, and we've got to say there is an answer, but we've got to wrestle with it together. That's the beauty of Christian community. So that's the second thing that I want to see. The third thing is that the gospel brings grace and peace. The gospel brings grace and peace. You, and you'll see this in verse three. Here's what it says. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These are, you know, grace was the Greek way of saying basically hello. And peace was the Jewish way of basically saying hello, kind of in kind of simple terms. And they're, they're hard terms to talk about because, well, one, because, you know, if, you're in the church, if you've been in the church for any amount of time, you've heard these words, you know, you're, you know, the grace of God is a uniquely Christian concept. It really is. It's that God does not treat your sins as they deserve. That God gives you unmerited, unfavor, you know, unmerited, unearned grace. That's what, that's what God does to you. But what's hard, and I could be wrong on this, but, and I've talked, but I've talked to several people about this. I think what's hard about grace in America, speaking to Americans about grace, 
The average American isn't impressed with grace anymore. I'm saying the non-Christian American. And I think it's because most Americans assume grace apart from the cross. They just think everything's going to be okay. Like, if you just watch how people talk, it's like, well, you know, every, people think everybody's going to heaven. Everybody's not going to heaven, right? <laughs> it's like, you know, everyone thinks, well, I, I, everything's going to be okay. Why would somebody think everything's going to be okay? Well, my past doesn't have to define me. Well, why would you say that? What would make you think that your past doesn't have to? I'm not saying it does have to define you. Do you understand what I'm saying, though? There's, no, there's, no, no, there's nothing special about the grace of God because people just assume everything's going to be okay. Like, like, you know, for Martin Luther, when Martin Luther, who kind of really broke open the book of Galatians in the 1500s, you've got to understand that during that period of time, people went to bed every night wondering if they were going to die and go to hell. Like, like not, not just monks, and I'm not saying a lot of people. And people, they would think this question all the time, well, I'm such a sinful, fallible, finite, broken person, and God is so big and holy. How could a holy God ever have a relationship with somebody as sinful as me? That, that's the question the Bible's trying to answer. That's the question that people were asking back then. The question that people were asking today is, how could a God who's kind of a bigger, smarter version of me not love me? That's the American spirit. God is a bigger, slightly smarter version of me who agrees with me. And we're cool. And we're, he's going to give me a hug when we get to heaven, and, and he doesn't, my sin's not really a big deal to him. And it's like, actually, well, you know, grace says that God can forgive any sin. Grace says, you, you know, the worst people can come to faith in Christ, but they have to admit their sinfulness and their brokenness. But then what the other thing, and I won't talk about this a lot because we'll get into this in weeks to come, but there's a transforming nature to grace, right? We always talk about the forgiving nature of grace, God, the grace of God to forgive, yes, and the grace of God to transform and change. The grace of God changes your heart from I have to to I get to. I get to read my Bible. I get to share my faith. I get to repent of my sin. I get to be part of the church. I get to pray, whatever it is. It's I get to, not I have to. And then there's this other term that we'll look at more, but he talks about peace. Now, peace is like Americans love peace, right? It's like Americans will pay top dollar for peace of mind. Peace of mind is if something terrible happens, I'll still be okay. Or if something terrible happens, my family will still be okay. It's like, man, especially the more money you get, the more money you can put toward that. Right? I mean, on a, on a small scale, that's what a warranty is. A warranty is like, well, if this breaks and causes me a bunch of stress and I don't know how to fix it, like, I pay 10 bucks a month and so someone will fix it for me. And, and I've got a five-year warranty, so I have complete peace of mind for five years. All the way to like life insurance, right? Not against life insurance, but life insurance is, you know, if I die, everyone will be taken care of. There's actually an interesting study, I won't go into this, but there's a correlation, I'm not sure if it's causation, but there's a correlation between um, life insurance being sold and church attendance going down. Because beforehand, it was like, well, if I, if I die, then hopefully the church will care for my family. When people had life insurance, they said, we don't need the church anymore. So peace is an interesting concept. So the Americans have situational peace, right? I mean, think about the fact that we can do this right now. Think about, just we're in this room right now, and you're able to sit here and listen. It's like, the only reason we can do that is because there's so many things around us that are creating peace, right? There's no riots in the street. There's police out there. The microphone's working. The lights are on. You either, you either just ate or you're going to eat. I mean, everything in your life's like, I mean, I know your life's hard, but I mean, there's a lot of things that allow you to just take an hour and a half and sit down here and, you know, it's all to be together. I mean, that's kind of unique in human history. It's like, well, you know, because of course, it's like, well, the economy's going well, and 
you know, there's, you know, uh, a lot of you, anyway, I won't get into all the details of it, but it's like there's a, there's a lot of things going on in our lives right now that create situational peace. Situational peace is fragile, though. The Bible talks about sal- salvation peace. It's the peace, it's the same thought process. If something terrible happens, I'm okay. But it doesn't go because of my circumstances, it goes because of what Christ had done on the cross. My, my biggest problems are solved. My sins have been forgiven. I have a God who suffered for me and suffers with me. I'm going to have to go through death, but there's life on the other side. Death is just a doorway. So he's going to we'll unpack these more grace and peace. Here's the fourth one. Um, the gospel is about a person and a price paid. I won't spend a lot of time on this because this is where Paul's going to spend most of his message. But if you'll look with me at verse 4, here's what it says. Who gave himself? Jesus Christ gave himself. The gospel's about Jesus. Christianity's about Jesus. We need to be, as a church and as Christians, not in weird ways, we need to be talking about Jesus Christ all the time. We need to let people know Christianity is not about a building, it's not about a place, it's not about an event, it's not about practices, principles, it's not about pews, it's not about bells and smells, it's not about routines and rituals. That what Christianity ultimately is about is a person. That's why the four gospels are about Jesus. That's why the epistles talk about what Jesus did. That's why Revelation is about Jesus' return. It's all about Jesus. It says this, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from, this, from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Here's the second thing we see about it, that it's about a price to be paid. The offense of the gospel, and we talk about this every week, basically. The offense of the gospel is that it's the grace of the gospel and the offense of the gospel are the same thing, that you're so terrible that God had to die. That you're so terrible that God had to send his only son, but you are so loved that God was willing to send his only son. That's the heart of the gospel. And, at the, and the offense of the cross, the offense of the gospel and what Paul's going to get at, and why we're going to see the Galatians were even turning around it, is because it's kind of offensive to talk about a bloody cross in an empty tomb. You know, I mean, the, the center of Christianity, Paul at one point, he goes into another city, Corinth, and he says, hey guys, listen, when I was among you, I decided to know one thing and only one thing, Jesus Christ crucified. It's the center message, that Jesus Christ substituted himself and died in our place for our sins, and God pulled out poured out all of his wrath on Jesus Christ. That's the heart of the gospel. Which leads to the next thing. The gospel is all about rescue and uh, repentance. Uh, It's in the same verse. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Now, Christianity is a rescue religion. It's not a rehabilitation religion. Where you rehabilitate yourself and you work on yourself and you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, right? Right? You may be sick, but your greatest problem is sin. You may need therapy, but your greatest problem is theology. You may be depressed, but your greatest problem is that you're spiritually dead. Our problems are always much deeper than we actually think they are. And this whole idea of being rescued, is, it's humiliating. You know, think about getting yourself into a situation, right? I knew somebody one time who, they got completely lost in the woods. And, and it got really, co- it's a long story, but they got completely lost in the woods and they had to call 911, and it was getting very cold, and it was very late at night, and no one knew where they were, and they weren't sure where they are, and guess what? It's humiliating. Because whenever you say that you need rescued, you're admitting two things at least. I'm helpless. I can't get, that's the heart of Christianity, is that we are helpless. We got ourselves into this, we can't get ourselves out of it. We couldn't pray hard enough, we couldn't think hard enough, we couldn't work hard enough. 
Uh, we couldn't get ourselves out of it, so we're helpless. And you know, the second thing is that we're lost. You know, and that's the exact opposite that one, most Americans want to admit. They want to act like they're not helpless. Their whole life is together. And they know where they're going. I'm not helpless. I'm just addicted. Right? That's the American mantra. Right? I'm not lost. I just don't know where I'm going. And it's like, well, you know, the, the, the Christianity comes and says, look, if you will admit those two things, if you'll get on your knees and admit that the only thing that you, br you bring to your salvation is your sin, and if you will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and you will turn from your sin and turn to him, he will forgive and he will pardon everything that you've ever done. That's the heart of the gospel. It says he wants to deliver us. It says that's an interesting phrase from this present evil age. See, this is one of the, one of the things we'll get into a lot in, in Galatians is that the gospel is for today and every day and that the grace of God doesn't just free us from the penalty of sin. It's like the average Christian thinks, Okay, when, I, when I, I gave my life to Christ, I was born again, uh, so when I die, I'm going to heaven. It's like, so is it only about dying? Is Christianity only about dying? I, you, you'd think since most churches are mostly just full of old people who are about to die. Like, maybe that's why people think that way. The average church in America, and God bless them, they're, they're doing great things. But I'm saying the average church, this is a fact, the average church in America is filled with a bunch of old people who are about to die. And it's like, I don't know if the younger generation thinks Christianity is only about when I die, making sure I'm okay. Well, that's not nothing. Because there is a penalty for sin that needs to be paid. But what, what, what this life is about is overcoming the power and the pollution of sin in this life. You know, it's about living a life of repentance now. It's about, you know, when does eternal life begin? The answer is the moment you gave your life to Christ. It doesn't, eternal life doesn't begin when you die. It, believe, it begins when you've repented and believed in the gospel. And Paul's going to show, we'll look at this later, Paul's going to show what it looks like to live your new life now. Which leads to the final thing, that the gospel is about God and his glory. The gospel is about God and his glory. It's like, you know, this is, this is an interesting point to talk about because we live in such a man-centered world. Where all we ever think about is man, or mostly ourselves, maybe social media, maybe our friends, and God lives in a very God-centered world. Like, God loves God. Think about this. If God, here's a deep thought. If God loved anything more than himself, he'd be committing idolatry. So God loves himself. God, it says here, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, what does it mean to glorify God? Because a lot of times people will say things like, you should glorify God, right? What does it mean to glorify God? It means to make God look great with your life. And I don't know what that means for you, right? Who knows what that means when you're a PA or you're a doctor or you're on the baseball field or you're a mom of young kids or, I mean, who knows, right? But that's a great question to ask. Well, all things considered, knowing how today's going, what would it look like for me? Maybe it's going to be how I relate to my workers. Maybe I'm going to have to speak up to make God look great. Maybe I'm going to have to say nothing to make God look great. Maybe I'm, not, maybe I'm going to have to, whatever it is. So he says that this is the glory of God. It's the greatness of God gone public. He says what, what, what Christianity is getting at, what the, goal of, what the goal of the gospel message and the grace of God is, is to restore our relationship with God. That's the goal of it. So think about it this way. And I read a book years ago by John Piper. It was called God is the Gospel. And what he says in it is that everything about that, we, that we get in the gospel is a means to a greater end of knowing God. Let me give you a few examples. Forgiveness. It's like, well, why is forgiveness a good idea. Everybody wants to be forgiven. What makes a Christian? I want to be forgiven so that I can be back in relationship with God. 
It's like, that's why you want your spouse to forgive you, your friend to forgive you. If you're, if you're rightly oriented, it's like, why do you want that to happen? Not just so you go, well, thank goodness, I'm forgiven. Because you want the relationship back. It's like, well, why is a new body a good Christian idea? It's like, everybody wants a new body, especially as it gets older. It's a, it's, it's a distinctly Christian idea because it's going to take my entire body full of energy and full of life to enjoy God. Why is eternity such a good idea? I mean, everybody would like to live forever. It's because it's going to take us that long to know and enjoy God. And that's why he ends with forever and ever. Which is interesting because I was reading this week an article on the Gospel Coalition, which is a great website, and it was about the show, I don't know if you've seen the show, The Good Place. Obviously, it's a very popular show. I've seen a few episodes before, but I'm about to, sorry, spoiler alert here. Um, but what's interesting about this is um, it went four seasons, so you know, most shows don't make it to two seasons. So it was a very popular show. Millions and millions of Americans watched it, and it's all about the afterlife. And the show starts with four people, and they're all in the afterlife, and you know, without getting into too detail, what ends up happening is they basically find out I'm not really in the afterlife, I'm more in like a purgatory. And they have to kind of work their way up to the real good place, heaven. But what's interesting is in the final season, they get to heaven. And they're in heaven, and they can basically, they're in the good place, and they can do whatever they want to do. And they can go wherever they want to go, and they can eat whatever they want to eat. And they can drink whatever they want to drink, and they can play whatever they want to play. And what's so fascinating, and it's, it's always interesting when you see the human heart, and you see things show up in the world that have always been in the scriptures. But at the end of the, the show and at the end of the final season, they all look at each other and they basically don't want to be in heaven anymore. And they're like, I don't, we don't like heaven. And they're basically bored. And so they create a doorway through which they can walk and kill themselves and no longer exist. This has like been applauded as like a great way and a victorious way to end the show. And The show ends with all four of them walking into the doorway to no longer exist. It's like, well, what's the lesson there? Heaven is in heaven without God. And we need more than just the creation, we need the creator. You know, we, we, you know, it's like, yes, we need food and drink, and we need to know the one who made food and drink. You know, yes, we want to enjoy things, and we want to enjoy the person who created them. And the thing about God that we don't fully, it blows and boggles the human mind, is that God is so glorious, it's going to take all of eternity to enjoy him, and we're never going to get bored of it. That's an incredible thought. And all of that, remember that famous song, Amazing Grace, where it says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we'll have no less days to sing your praise than when we first begun. The whole idea there is that we're gonna realize every day that we're in heaven, it is, if we've trusted Christ, it is only by the grace of God. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you in Jesus' name. We thank you for the grace of God. We need it, Lord. Lord, help us as a church to live as sinners Big sinners saved by even a bigger grace, Lord. Help us to live that way. Lord, help us. Lord, I, I've got to imagine in a room this size, there are people with marriages that need healed. And I don't want to oversimplify it, but there's a lot of things that can happen when two people commit to being sinners, <laughs> admit that they're sinners, and admit that they need God's grace and they want to extend God's grace, Lord. Lord, I pray for the unity of our church, Lord. Even as we spend the next few months in this book, Lord, you would u- use it to unify us in the deep, deep message of the gospel and in the grace of God and the peace of God. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.